guilty, guilty insurrectionist and seditionist Steve Bannon is guilty of contempt of Congress in federal court in Washington, D.C. And if that's not blockbuster enough, well, we're going to talk about the blockbuster primetime January 6th committee hearings this past Thursday, which was the mic drop that our democracy needed. Boy, oh boy, did our democracy need that. But our democracy is continually under threat, continually under attack from Trump, Trump's insurrectionists, and from Trump's radical extreme judges who he was able to appoint when he was president. And just this past week, the radical right Supreme Court refused to intervene and stop a radical right Trump appointee, federal judge who intervened and directed President Biden and the Department of Homeland Security that you can't prioritize as part of your immigration policy that dangerous and violent individuals who unlawfully enter this country should be deported first. That was actually what a federal judge said and the Supreme Court refused to intervene. This week, as we predicted as well, Twitter had a huge victory in the Delaware Chancery Court over Elon Musk in his failed, whatever you want to call it, manipulation, fake attempts to buy Twitter. We will break down what happened in Delaware Chancery Court. And we also learned this week that 16 fake electors from Georgia are now critical targets of Fawny Willis, the Fulton County District Attorney's criminal investigation into Trump election interference and other news to report from Georgia. And speaking of Trump, while we're on the topic, we should talk about his personal lawyer, Alina Haba, who was just sued this week by her assistant, one of her employees for racial discrimination. The most consequential legal news of the week when our democracy is on the line, you turn to one destination that is legal af ben micellis and michael popak michael popak how are you doing this weekend you ready for a wrap-up of some blockbuster legal news tip of the hat to you ben we're going to continue with hat summer ben might go even longer than that one point of clarification on twitter ben is not wearing a sombrero ben is wearing a cowboy style hat just to be just to be clear that's not a sombrero is it Absolutely. Don't. If you really want to dig deep into the sombrero cowboy hat go there. distinction, they're basically <laughs> the same thing. But let me be clear. This is a sombrero that I it is purchased. a sombrero. I purchased it in Kukula. One other point I want to make about this sombrero that I purchased in Kukula two hours from Guadalajara when I was there this past month is I'm in Arizona right now. That's the background. I'm staying in a hotel room, but I wore this hat to an actual formal court ordered Ninth Circuit mediation. I wore this exact hat there and everyone was a little bit surprised. They the, the lawyers haven't yet fully <laughs> my law partners, the associates, they're not fully. Uh, they embraced the legal AF style, the new Popakian and Micellus hat wear. But uh, it took him a few minutes to get used to. But let's get used to Bannon being guilty, 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 like the seditionist insurrectionist. He is Michael Popak. We said it here on the last Legal AF that 
We said this is going to be an open and shut case. The government's case is going to be a fairly easy one for them to put on. They're going to call witnesses who just literally sent this subpoena to Steve Bannon because everybody remember what this trial was about. The January 6th committee gave a subpoena saying you need to show up on such and such a date. Steve Bannon did not attempt to negotiate. He objected. He said that, well, I am a podcaster, so therefore I deserve executive privilege and all these other privilege. I'm not even going to show up. No attempts to cooperate. And so the January 6th committee, after Steve Bannon refused to show up, he missed the date. They attempted again after Bannon didn't show up. They referred it to the Department of Justice because you can't just not show up when you receive subpoenas. The Department of Justice prosecuted. So this case was about contempt of Congress. Two counts. One, Bannon not showing up to testify. Two, Bannon not turning over documents. So the trial was a fairly basic trial. Government called up its witnesses. Uh, hey, witness number one, which was the person who issued the subpoena lawyer for the January 6th committee. Hey, did you write the subpoena? Yes. Did you put the date on it? Yes. Did you send it to Bannon? Yes. Did he show up? No. It was based, that was basically the direct examination there. Put on one other witness who basically said the same thing. Um, Bannon didn't testify. Oh, boy. Bannon said, Popak, I'm going to give everybody hell this trial. I'm going to give everybody hell. But like the little snowflake he is, Bannon doesn't testify. Uh, the jury took about three hours to deliberate, found Bannon, Bannon guilty on both counts. Each count carries with it the uh, minimum of 30 days in jail, a maximum of one year. So because there are two counts, he can serve two years. Sentencing is October 21st. Bannon can, of course, appeal. He will be appealing. Um, but Popak, what do you make of the trial, the outcome, his prospects in an appeal? What do you think's going on here? He, this lived by the Popak rule that uh, juries that are ready to rule very quickly in a case, they just wait for instruction and then lunch. And then they ruled against him on both counts. I think that uh, Bannon always knew that he was going to lose this. They put up a very paper defense, called no witnesses, they cross-examined their way through their defense only. And uh, the closing statement, closing argument, uh, focused on whether Benny Thompson actually signed the subpoena or not on his handwriting, which is sort of a weak defense. They have preserved for appeal their fundamental issue, which is whether the judge's ruling that a 1962 precedent of um, U.S. versus Licardi or Licavoli uh, which said that there was no advice of counsel defense to a contempt of Congress charge, whether that is good law or not. Judge said it was. Judge Nichols said it was and precluded them from putting on that defense. Of course, they also wanted to put on the other the other defense of executive privilege, which I don't think they're going to win on appeal. So Bannon's playing the long game here. First of all, in the upside down world that he and the others occupy, this is a badge of honor. He got convicted. He didn't he didn't uh, he didn't cave. He didn't settle. So in that world, in the podcasting Republican right wing world, that's a badge of honor, just like it is for Michael Flynn and others um, in the appeal. They will argue that the judge got the defense of counsel uh, ruling wrong, that he should have been able to argue that to the jury to defeat willfulness and intent. And that appeal is going to happen after sentencing, which you mentioned is in October. The sentencing here, I mean, I would think, what do you think, Ben, three to six months? 
Well, here's the thing that we have to wait. The judge, Judge Carl Nichols, is a Trump appointee. And while Judge Nichols um, adopted the precedent from the case you mentioned, Popak was 1961, you said 1962, but, but, but who's counted Popak? The case was Licavoli versus United States involving um, a, a gangster. Licavoli was uh, was a mobster who wouldn't testify. And so that's actually the precedent here. And what Nichols said was, I'm going to follow the Licavoli precedent because it is binding D.C. Circuit precedent. But he did question whether that precedent should actually be the law, basically saying to the United States Supreme Court, you may want to revisit this issue. I mention all of that because I think those are things we need to keep in mind because Bannon is going to appeal. I think the appeal, the ruling will be affirmed. By the but what do you think the sen- what do you think the sentencing is going to be? I said three to six months. What did you think? Oh, I think uh, I, probably around that. I, I I think it'll be on the yeah. lower. I think it'll tend to be probably yeah. on the lower. Yeah. It'll be, look, and here's why. Here's what they can consider, though. Um, I think if Bannon was not a total criminal piece of crap that he is, and it was a first time offense. Um, there would be a different consideration. One of the things that the judge has to consider here is that Bannon was already pardoned and pardon implied his guilt based on the build the wall scam, the fraud that Bannon was previously involved in. So Bannon already has a record by, by him being pardoned by Trump. It implies his guilt. And Judge Carl Nichols, we know he follows precedent and he takes the position seriously because he filed he followed Licavoli. That's why I think that three to six month range is probably accurate. Whereas the initial instinct of a Trump appointee would probably to be a downward departure to even less than that. But I think we probably have about six months, three months for each account. But I think Bannon I think will I, I think the biggest problem Bannon had from the beginning was not some, you know, there were two there were two subpoenas, one for testimony, one for documents, hence the two counts of the conviction. I think his harder problem was the documents, the testimony. He, he should have just went in not act like the subpoena, as you phrased it last time, Ben, as an invitation to bargain with the Congress over the deadlines. If he just gone in and taken the Fifth Amendment, they would have been sorted out in the court system. Ultimately, the documents presents a harder problem because we know from the Jan 6 committee that there are tons of documents that they've gotten their hands on, including about the Willard Hotel, the the um, uh, the strategy meetings in the bunker involving Bannon on Jan 5, on Jan 6. And there's a very limited application, as you and I have talked about in past podcasts, to the Fifth Amendment to document production. You, It's still applicable if it's deemed to be testimonial based on a line of cases that we've talked about in the past, including Web Hubble, uh, U.S. versus Web Hubble. But it's very limited. So he probably, I assume he had a cache of documents and notes and other things that he was really worried about turning over and not having a Fifth Amendment privilege. And then he was going to take the hit on the testimonial side. But look, the long game here, as you've outlined, I've outlined, he's going to take the appeal to the D.C. uh, Court of Appeals. He's going to then get it up to the Supreme Court, where we know, and we'll talk later about Supreme Court rulings, there is a very favorable uh, majority that's waiting for that appeal to come up and to declare whether that type of contempt of Congress case is going to stick or not for the future. So he's playing in the meantime, he's out on he's out. He's not going to be put in jail for this. He wasn't put in jail pretrial. He's not going to be put in jail now after sentencing. He'll be out for the next year during the appeal. And then, you know, listen, this 
whatever's going to happen, this particular Jan 6 committee, you know, kind of goes potentially by the wayside, January 2023. And he's playing that and a, and a receptive Supreme Court waiting for the appeal. It's interesting that the precedent, right, was this 1961 yeah. case, Likavoli, which involved the gangster, which involved the mobster, because when it oftentimes comes to contempt of Congress, the mafia doesn't want to testify. They want to destroy their records. And it's really no different when we think about what the Trump administration is. In many ways, you could basically interpose Trump for Likavoli because Trump is a mobster and that is how they operate. So we learn from this January 6th prime time hearing a step by step of what took place during these 187 minutes. And the term dereliction of duty, dereliction of duty is used over and over again. And it's not that just Trump failed to act. It's that he chose specifically not to act when yeah. he knew what was going on. And that is the willful yeah. dere dereliction of duty. And during that period of time, Michael, the 187 minutes too, we have all of the records deleted and things being shredded. And that's where we're seeing uh, the kind of uh, the buffer where everyone's clamping up in Trump's inner circle was what took place during that time period. The Mark Meadows piece, right? The Bannons, the Trump, you know, and all those people, the Flynn, all those people who you see the Eastman taking the fifth, taking the fifth, because what we've seen very clearly with the January 6th committee is that when Trump's baseless and bogus efforts failed every step of the way to do his coup of the Department of Justice and try to overthrow the real Department of Justice officials with idiot moron Jeff Clark, who had never even done a criminal investigation. They picked some low level guy to put on DOJ letterhead to try to claim that the election is a fraud. By the way, Jeff Clark is under a disciplinary investigation by the D.C. bar to take away his legal license. Not only do Trump's lawyers lose their cases and get sanctioned in court, most of them have lost their legal licenses or are under investigation to lose their legal license. So after that failed, after Trump pressuring and extorting legislatures failed, he turns the mob on the Capitol building to stop the count, to allow these fake electors to ultimately be the ones that were counted. Trump viewed it, too, that he was going to show up like some Napoleonic figure, walk up, march up through the Capitol building, move over, Mike Pence. I am the dictator. That was the plan. That's what he wanted to do. And we know that from the January 6th hearing, we had star witnesses, Sarah Matthews and Matt Pottinger, who uh, testified over 17.7 million people at least watched this on TV. That does not include, of course, the individuals who saw this streaming Midas touch network was one of the top destinations on our YouTube for where people watched it. We got close to 200,000 people who watched it alone, which would make us actually one of the top cable destinations. If we have a cable network, maybe we should do a cable network. Maybe we're planning that right now, Pope. I don't know. Maybe I'll reveal those plans on the brother podcast, but there are a few moments that I want to talk about Popak, and I want to get your insight as well into this dereliction of duty. 
you know, we see those outtakes, right? Remember the outtakes of Trump from one seven the next day struggling to make his speech. But there's two ways to look at it. There's one way to look at it. I like looking at it this way, and I think both are accurate are accurate. He struggles to make the speech because he's an idiot and he has trouble pronouncing words and he says he can't see the words and he doesn't know how to pronounce the word yesterday. And he goes, yesterday's a big word for me. Uh, yeah, I, I'm trying. I'm struggling with the word yesterday. Mm, yeah, Trump's a moron. He's an idiot. Uh, and his idiocracy, fortunately, is one of the reasons the insurrection failed because he's an idiot. Um, but there is a nefarious nature to what he said yesterday. And I want everyone to pay attention specifically to the word yesterday and why he struggled to say that. Because when you look at what he said, he was talking about the heinous attacks yesterday. And what was in his brain was that if he just used the word heinous attacks, he could keep manipulating his base and people to believe the attacks were actually Trump's own bullshit about how the election was stolen from him, the attack on him by connecting it to yesterday, one six, Trump was connecting it to the actual insurrection itself, which he didn't want to do because then he would be blaming himself and he would be taking responsibility for the attack that took place yesterday. That's why he didn't want to say the word yesterday. It's the same reason why he didn't want to say the election is over. He was okay, you know, enough to say, well, it's been certified after the insurrection failed, but he would not say the election is over. So you take that Popak, you take the tweet he did the night before on January 6th, right after the insurrection, where he goes, this is what happens when people try to steal the election. And you hear about him being there for 187 minutes. And you talk about Sarah Matthews, who said, look, it was my job as the deputy press secretary to to defend him. I can't defend the indefensible right there. I can't defend the indefensible. Something needs to happen. And then you have this Matt Pottinger, who's a deputy national security advisor. I mean, he's a top level security official in the White House talking about how Trump's actions not only were a domestic threat, but emboldened our enemies and further narratives against our democracy. Those were some of my takeaways, Popak. What were some of your big takeaways? You thanks, Ben. You you start with um, who they selected to prosecute. It's not the final day of the Jan 6 hearings. They're going to be reconvening in September. There's so much new information and data that the Jan 6 committee has accumulated, even in the last weeks, even in the last days, that uh, what they thought was going to be the the final crescendo, final closing argument we're going to see more in September, probably right up until the midterms, I'm sure. In this particular day eight, they've chose two people with a military background, two people who were effectively were lieutenant colonels in their respective armed forces. You have uh, Representative Luria, who was a commander in the Navy, and you had Kinzinger, who was a lieutenant colonel in the Air Force. And you also, we had a lot of brass up there because Matt Pottinger, back in the day, was in Afghanistan, and he was a major in Afghanistan. And Keith Kelly, 
was a general, lieutenant general, and he was Pence's national security advisor. Why did they choose so much brass to be up on that podium and at that witness boxes? Because they wanted to talk about exactly what you just said, the dereliction of duty of the commander in chief. And who better to do it than Republicans who served, at least on the witness side, who served this, this country nobly at time of war for many of them, commenting back on their fellow Republican, a feckless Donald Trump. The power of that presentation for me about the 187 days, whereas you said he didn't just do nothing. He actively did other things other than quell the, the siege that was being laid on the Capitol while he sat in the dining room watching, literally watching Fox News, which we always thought he did. And, it, and instead of tweeting at the exact moment that all of his inner circle, observed by Sarah Matthews, the deputy press secretary, observed by Matt Pottinger, the highest ranking person to resign on Jan 6, the deputy national security advisor, the reason that they ultimately said we've had enough of Donald Trump and we're walking out the door with our whatever's left of our own dignity and reputation in tatters held high, we're going to walk out that door. It's because at two o'clock, as the siege was laid on the Capitol, as it was clear from the video evidence that there was violence, that there were deaths, that there were Capitol Police being attacked, that this was a war, a war zone. What did the president do when told get on national television, put a stop to this. Only you can control the mob. They only answer to you, something he acknowledged when he said, take down the magnetometers. These are my people. I don't care if they're armed. They're not going to harm me. He knows he had control over them. Instead of doing that, he tweets. Talk about gasoline on the fire, Sarah Matthews said. He tweets about Mike Pence doing, doing the right thing and stopping the, the peaceful transfer of power at the right exact wrong moment for him to have done that when he could have put down the insurrection by taking to the, he didn't have to go down there, but get on national television and call off the dogs. He doesn't do that. Sarah Matthews and Matt Pottinger at that moment decide to leave the administration and walk out the door because of that two o'clock tweet. What, he, what doesn't he do at two o'clock? He doesn't call out the National Guard. Now I know on social truth media, whatever the, F it's called. He said, oh, no, it's not all true. Uh, Nancy Pelosi, I told her weeks before I have the National Guard there. That's a lie. That's a lie for which none of the millions of pages of documents and witnesses that a thousand witnesses that have been interviewed have been able to corroborate because it's not true. Instead, he waited until 430, two hours after the Pence tweet, while the, you know, right in the in the scrum of the attack to give the order on the National Guard. That left almost almost three hours at the Capitol, Capitol Police waging a battle outgunned, outmanned against these armed insurrectionists. That is Trump's legacy. That is the stain, as as uh, Kinzinger said, Kinzinger said, that's the stain on Trump. Now, the question is, Ben, from your perspective, after eight sessions, after seeing the best of the evidence to date, the best of the witnesses to date, including uh, Pat Cipollone again, do you think a criminal case has been made for the Department of Justice to take up the mantle and prosecute Donald Trump? The direct answer is yes, absolutely, and unequivocally. You know, Popak, um, I was reading an article uh, 
And the headline, it was from The Guardian. And the headline is House panel showed Trump conspired to seize the election. But was it illegal? Yes. Okay. When someone conspired to seize the election, that is illegal. It's interesting, but is it illegal, Ben? (laughs) I mean, what kind of headline is that? That is absolutely 100 percent illegal to seize the election. And it's illegal at every level of what he did, not just on January 6th. I know we focus specifically on the day because it reached a crescendo that day, crescendo that day. But he's doing it now. What's illegal? I mean, there was news and we heard from this feckless, you know, cowardice, ridiculous assembly speaker from Wisconsin, this Republican speaker who was interviewed, I was walking and uh, he was walking around. I'm not sure if he was walking in his neighborhood or the house during this interview. And he was asked, hey, is Donald Trump? When was the last time you heard from Trump? He was like, oh, he uh, gave me a call last week. And what did he say to you last week? Well, uh, he wanted me to, uh, uh, to overturn the results of the election. And I told him that we had a disagreement about the uh, Constitution. And uh, I said I respected his views. Uh, and he uh, but he told me that I needed to overturn it. But uh, we had a difference of opinion. And that was about it. It's like, wait a minute. He called you bombshell. What are we talking about here, people? Donald Trump called you last week and told you in 2022 in July to overturn the results of a 2020 election. And you view that as I I respected his opinion. I mean, these Republicans are like one of the things this January 6th committee is exposed is other than Cheney and Kinziger. And this is what Liz Cheney said at the end about um, at the end of her speech. She goes, you know, you have all of these 50, 60, 70 year old men hiding behind executive privilege as you have the Cassidy Hutchinson's and you have the Sarah Matthews. And look, you have the Matt Pottingers and you have other people who did come forward. But, you know, even when you heard from like this, uh, you know, the, the speaker from uh, Arizona, you know, or some Russ of these Republicans, Bowers, yeah, Rusty Bowers. who's now You're been right. censured by his own party for having given yeah, right. proper I'm in Arizona testimony. now. So when people go, oh, yeah, they're <laughs> calling Rusty. I mean, the people in Arizona, though, and it is a purple state. And most I haven't really seen or inter- I mean, I met people who identified previously as conservative who now are independent who think what's going on is absolutely batshit insane you know so that's you know so that's just people who i've interacted here but they go the fact that rusty bowers is is as republican as it got rusty bowers believes god gave the founders directly the constitution to read and rusty bowers is viewed as a rhino radical lefty because anyone who's not a fascist in their mind is a rhino or a radical. He said after his testimony that he would still vote for Trump. I mean, it's he doesn't. I don't think he said (laughs) he got censured and he got censured by his own party for. But but it goes to their. But like this is one of the things January 6th has exposed in addition to the fact of all the crimes that Trump committed, like do all you have to do to get a Republican to do something is just act a little mean to them. Like, could I just bully my way in the Republican party to become the president by just being an asshole? You, and you'll go, be a top you're gonna guy. Do the, you're going <laughs> to I go, you're going to do this for me. You're going to do it and you're going to shut up and you're going to do it. And you know what their response would probably be, Popak? Oh, well, if you say it meanly like that, I guess I got to do it. I guess I got to do it. That's basically what well, they're. They, well, well, they all. And just to prove your point, DeSantis does the exact same thing to the legislature in Florida. 
He's he's tougher than they are. He's meaner than they are. His bully pulpit works better than theirs. And they go, okay, uh, throw out the maps. Okay, throw out the sex education books. So, uh, uh, you know, don't inoculate our children. Okay. I guess I guess we got to do it because he's being mean <laughs> because he's being mean to us. I mean, that's one of the things that exposed to. But but Popak, I mean, I do appreciate and going to your question, I do appreciate the way Merrick as a lawyer, as the way Merrick Garland is handling the investigation because he's handling it quietly, professionally. He's climbing the ladder. And I know we've always talked about that on this podcast. Would I like Merrick Garland to move quicker? Absolutely, yes. But is this the biggest investigation in the history of the Department of Justice? Is it the most high profile in the history of the Department of Justice? And any mistake, any little thing like Popak and I, we're going to be talking about what's going on in Georgia right now, where there actually was something raised as and look, I'm a big phony Willis fan as well. But as we talk later in this episode about what's going on with phony Willis, you know, there was something about phony Willis, you know, who was, um, you know, was was supporting a political opponent of someone that was subpoenaed and it created an appearance of a conflict of interest that almost derailed that investigation. Yeah. And so you see how careful can I, really can I give you one, one more comparison that proves your point on this show and you and I offline, we think uh, Letitia James, Tish James is doing a great job in New York for her civil investigation. Just to remind everybody she started that a long time ago. She has not yet brought charges related to her civil investigation. And they're still trying to get the deposition testimony, which was postponed because Ivana Trump died, you know, in an accidental death uh, right right up actually the day, uh, the day before the testimony was supposed to be given. But as so and as well as she's doing and preparing her case, she's not ready to bring charges. And yet even, you know, I know the Jan 6 committee, for instance, Ben, is leaning on the Department of Justice. Uh, Luria, Lura, when she was on um, on uh, one of the Sunday talk shows or just after the eighth, I think just after the eighth session said, well, I hope to God the Department of Justice is looking at this and bringing criminal charges. Look, this is an airtight investigation that's being done at the end. When the game is over, the scoreboard is done. We draw a line under it. We can judge Merrick Garland as being an effective attorney general or not and exercising his prosecutorial discretion. But in the middle of it, I, I think we, we're not doing him justice, no pun intended, or anybody else that's a line prosecutor or on the FBI or investigators into the case. Let them develop their case. The timing of it will be when the when the case is ready to present to a grand jury and to indict first time in our nation's history, a former president. And you know who also, you know, you mentioned Tish James, you know, who also hasn't prosecuted Trump yet? Fawny Willis. She hasn't. Right. The process there is they have a special grand jury, which makes a recommendation. And then the recommendation goes to an actual grand jury. And only after the actual grand jury would there be an indictment. And there the judge who's appointed to oversee the special grand jury in Fulton County, Georgia, has said, I also want to make sure there's separation between the election and between, you know, when indictments could potentially happen. And I'm going to oversee that. I do also want to talk about, though, Michael, this briefly, you know, we, we talked about it ad nauseum. But when that DOJ memo came out and it was a generic DOJ memo 
from May of 2022. And the purpose of the memo, it's sent every election year. The names are changed when there's by every attorney, attorney general, general Democrat, every attorney general. <laughs> and I know it must be kind of triggering to see Bill Barr's name in it. But he was the attorney general previously who instituted the previous policy. And you can go, well, the previous policy required approval of Bill Barr. But one of the criticisms, if you assume that is as true, but one of the criticisms of Bill Barr was that Bill Barr was hyper political and hyper partisan and made decisions outside of the prosecutorial discretion that you would like. So the argument doesn't even hold because. Well, then wouldn't you want that decision to rest in a partisan way if your goal is solely to make sure that prosecutions are pursued? So like if you took it, you can say, well, what's good for the goose is also good for democracy. And I'm going to use that same you know, power to make sure we fight for democracy. But that's not what this memo was or is. It's a generic memo that's sent every election season because there are lots of attorney generals, AUSAs across assistant U.S. attorneys across the country. And it's just reminding them, hey, if you're going to do a prosecution and it involves it could be a member yeah. of Congress, it could be whoever. Just let run your it boss know. Flagpole. Let your, <laughs> let boss, your know. boss know. Let your boss. It's a let your boss know memo. And you and I pointed that out out right away, Popak, to people because everyone was like, Merrick Garland's the worst. Merrick Garland's the worst. Merrick Garland's the worst. And look, I want it's frustrating. I want Trump to be prosecuted so badly. He deserves it. Trust me, he deserves it. He is. He is a threat. He is a menace to society. He is disgust. So I feel it. I feel it. But we can't in pursuit of justice, you know, snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. You know, we can't be the cause because of our defeatist and doomsday attitude that we let the other side win. Yeah. Look, on, on the memo, not to keep beating a dead horse, um, but that memo, two things, two quick observations. One, it stops things like the director of the FBI, James Comey, standing up in front of a podium just before an election to make to say he's opening an investigation against the candidate, in this case, Hillary Clinton, that we all I think we all agree that was a bad thing. And that probably was one of the things that led to her defeat. A memo like that stop memo like this stops it. And I give I give credit to uh, to Merrick Garland for mentioning the name of the prior, just prior attorney general, because it inoculates him from any attacks that he's that he Merrick Garland is being political, ignoring the entire chapter of Bill Barr because you didn't like him or you thought he was a hack, which we all do. It doesn't get you anywhere. If you're continuing a policy from the prior unimpeached guy or person in Bill Barr, you mention him as a continuity. OK, and so I was all right with Merrick Garland doing that. It would be weird if he said, I am going to reinstate Eric Holder or Loretta Lynch's memo <laughs> from 10 years ago. That would be weird. It's not weird if you're if believe in a rule of law, not man, in a rule of, of, of and uh, and a process, which Merrick Garland does. And you say, you know what? There was one good memo that I agree with. 
that Bill Barr picked up from other Democrats. I'm going to continue it. And again, I saw all sorts of things, as did you on Twitter. Oh, it's going to stop. If anybody announces that they're a candidate, there's no there's not going to be a criminal prosecution or investigation. No, it just says if you're a line prosecutor, if it's below the president, you go to your U.S. attorney. And if you're uh, if it's a presidential candidate, go see the big boss in the Department of Justice for final approval. That's all. And I'm sure Merrick Garland will sign off on it if the evidence supports the prosecution. That's and Merrick Garland said that. I mean, the next right. day he gave or two days later, the next day, whatever it was, he gave an interview where he was asked those questions and he was asked it again. He's like, look, how many times do you want me to say it? I will what? prosecute him. I will prosecute him. There's nothing about his status as being a former president or running for president that would prevent me. No one is above the law. How many times do you want me to say it? And one thing about Biden, too, I could say many things about Biden. I was reflecting on this last night just with how how incredibly uh, impressive Biden's work with our allies has been and his work with Ukraine has been against Russia and what he's exposed with Putin and Russia. And even as kind of momentum has ebbed and flowed, his stick to itiveness, his continuing to provide weapons to stop a global war and to expose Russia and allowing Ukraine. You know, I just spoke to Ben Hodges, who ran our army's um, uh, efforts previously in Europe and worked with Ukraine. And he told me about all the advances that were being made there. But the point I'm making, though, is that Biden hires really, really good people. And Merrick Garland has a history of being like the top prosecutor that we really what? have in the United <laughs> States. Period. He's where, the were number all, one. where were all these people when Merrick Garland was denied his rightful seat on the Supreme Court? We were all we were all up in arms. Merrick Garland, he's amazing. The, the prosecutor for the Oklahoma City bombing. He's a guy that we want there. Oh, it's a terrible thing. It's a shonder, as we would say in our religion. Now he's the guys. The, yeah, he's the LeBron, the, he's the LeBron James of prosecutors. Like, he's a hack. Why hasn't he brought the case yet? Because we don't live in a in a society <laughs> like North Korea or China or Russia. Poor Brittany Griner is is under this this environment where it's a fait accompli that the opposition leader or whatever is going to be prosecuted after he leaves power. We I believe Ben, you do, too, in a rule of law, not men. This is not dependent on Merrick Garland. This is dependent on process. And everyone's saying, well, and even even talking heads that are you know, on podcasts, not ours. We'll say things like, well, I don't know. There's no evidence that there's even a grand jury or they're even looking at these things. And the Jan 6 committee is leaning on the Department of Justice. Let them do their job that they were paid to do as professionals, not hacks. And let you them come. Up, and then when. Yeah, good. Go ahead. I was going to say, you no, know, I was gonna say let them deliver the indictment. And if they don't, then on a future podcast, podcast number 212 for Legal AF, we can criticize Merrick Garland that in the face of all the evidence that was in front of him, he didn't have the will to act. But I'm not ready to issue that indictment of Merrick Garland just yet. Yeah. You know, when Trump gives his speeches now and he does these ridiculous uh, 
you know, insurrectionist, <laughs> asylum, insane asylum kind of tours that he does. He goes, we need quick, we need quick trials, quick trials. We need quick trials like they do in China. Quick trials. We don't do quick trials here. We do democratic. We do dem- democracy trials. We have the actual rule of law here. And Popak, speaking of the rule of law, though, we need to talk about what the Supreme Court did this past week. You know, this this effort by the Supreme Court relates to steps taken by a U.S. district court judge, a Trump appointee by the name of Drew Tipton from the Southern District um, of uh, Texas. Um, And Drew Tipton um, said in a ruling about a month or so ago, two months ago, he said that this September 2021 memo by Department of Homeland Security had Alejandro Mayorkas, that Department of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas's September 2021 memo, which directed immigration officials, ICE, to focus on arresting immigrants who were deemed to threaten public safety or national security and migrants who recently crossed a U.S. border illegally should be prioritized over other individuals who arrived here unlawfully, um, but who are not threatening public safety or national security and migrants. Now, I've read this this guideline, this this memo, and it, it literally is just a guideline. And this just goes to show you the efforts that are being taken by the radical right to undermine the president. Biden in issues that impact our national security, international relations and areas that are within the province of the president. Because you look at this September 30th, 2021 memo, and it says to ICE, it says to the U.S. Customs and Border Protection and ICE and, and others, this memo is providing you guidance for the apprehension and removal of non-citizens. It begins by saying, I'm grateful for the work that you perform. We stand strongly behind our U.S. Immigrations and Customs Enforcement. We appreciate the work that you're doing. It talks about the fact that there are 11 million undocumented or otherwise uh, removable non-citizens in the United States. But it says we don't have the resources true to apprehend every single one of these non-citizens. So in exercising our discretion, we're guided by the fact that a number of the undocumented workers are contributing members of our communities. These could be people who fought against COVID, who lead our congregations of faith, who teach our children, who do backbreaking farm work to help deliver food to our table and contribute to this country in meaningful ways. But we need to exercise our discretion of people who are threatening Americans' well-being first. So those who threaten national security and public safety, and it gives a list of factors about you should focus on the gravity of offense, of the conviction and the sentence imposed, the nature and the degree of harm, of the criminality, of uh, individuals who are here unlawfully. The sophistication, does it involve firearms or dangerous weapons? These are the types of factors that they want ICE to factor in of where the resources happen. 
So what happened, Popak, was the state of Ohio through Republicans there and Montana, um, I think one other state, um, they filed a lawsuit first in Cincinnati. They won in Cincinnati, but it was overturned. What they won was to stop this guidance from being implemented, basically hamstring Biden from having any immigration policy is ultimately what this order is. But the Sixth Circuit disagreed and the Sixth Circuit said, no, you know, you can't do that. That's a Biden decision. He's the president. So the Sixth Circuit knocked that down. So what do these radical right Republicans do? Let's just pick another court. Which court should we bring it in? Hey, Mm. state of Texas and Louisiana. Why don't you bring it in the Southern District of Texas? Because we've got a lot of uh, Trump appointees there. They drew a Trump appointee right there. And the Trump appointee says, I am banning this guidance from being filed, followed. And why do they want to ban it, though? Because they want him to arrest everybody. Unpractically, they don't don't prioritize. They're going to claim, oh, well, we think that there's a better way to get more dangerous criminals off the street. But they want the productive members of society who are here to be prioritized the same as the dangerous criminals. But they really want to do is just throw this all into disarray. Yeah. So it gets so it gets uh, uh, appeal to the Fifth Circuit. The Fifth Circuit says, oh, we're not going to stop it, but we'll wait till it gets to us on regular appeal. So because this is now implemented and it has these nationwide implications, the Department of Justice appeals to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court says, look, we will hear this on our regular calendar in December, even though we've used our what do they call it, Popak? The uh, shadow docket. The shadow docket. We, even though we've used the shadow docket before to screw over democracy and all these other times, in this occasion, let's just not let the president uh, have any ability over say to even give guidance over his immigration policy until we hear this in December. Supreme Court's going to hear it in December, but that's the basic setup of this thing, Popak. Yeah, and it's a setup. It's a setup. They 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 wanted to get Drew Tipton, uh, the judge, the, the Trump appointee, because he's ruled against the Biden administration on immigration before. So he's a soft spot for them. They were hoping they would draw him. And they did. And then, of course, the Fifth Circuit we've talked about at length in prior 20 prior podcasts about the Fifth Circuit being basically anti Biden if they get the right combination of three judges on the panel, which they do. And and uh, again, I think it's. It's all a charade. The Republicans don't have any interest in different or stronger or more humane immigration policy. All they have is they want to be able to attack Biden, the Biden administration and its policies by throwing, as, as you referred to as like a monkey wrench and creating havoc and chaos so that Biden can't accomplish his goals. There is nothing wrong with an administration and a department head, in this case, Secretary Mayorkas, issuing a memo about how to properly allocate scarce resources. They've already lowered the number of deportations out of ICE, not because the Biden administration is like deporting less numerically. It's because of the other policy that they were not able to alleviate, which is now the ICE is able to instantly eject people and let them wait on the other side in the dangerous country they're coming from and not and not have the safety of being in America during that process. And so that lowers implicitly the 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 number of deportations. But the, the Republicans are 
a, a pol- are a party that doesn't have any moral center and they don't have any answers or plans for a, a, the, the overhaul of immigration as a policy in this country. And therefore, they're just left with taking pot shots at the Biden administration. The, the interesting sort of strange bedfellows is that f- uh, four justices would have taken up the case for an immediate appeal. And yes, it was Sotomayor. Ketanji Brown Jackson in her first her first decision, uh, participating in her first decision as a new Supreme Court justice, and Elena Kagan. But Amy Coney Barrett joined them. So we had the four women of the Supreme Court joined together to say, let's hear it now. But they were outvoted five to four by the five white guys. And so uh, what we have is now a chaotic immigration policy. You actually had Tipton, I'm going to leave it on this one, Ben. You actually had Tipton say that Mayorkas's issuing the memo was arbitrary and capricious exercise of administrative power, that it violates congressional intent, and therefore go back to the drawing board. You you can't ever you can't do any emergency applications related to um, uh, related to uh, immigration policy, and this hampers in the present environment Biden's ability. I want to just manage expectations here. Biden's ability through executive order through administrative policymaking memos from his department heads is severely limited in the post-Trump judicial world because of so many unfriendly judicial appointments at the federal level and ultimately circuits like the Fifth and the Supreme Court. So people are saying, like in abortion, executive, executive orders, issue as many. The problem is these are doomed to failure mainly because of the federal judges that Trump was able to appoint in the circuits where these cases and these executive orders are being challenged. And Biden did issue the executive orders. You talk about the abortion cases. Biden did issue an executive order, for example, with hospitals that you have to provide emergency care to individuals who require emergency care. And if that care and the standard of care requires an abortion, you have to provide that abortion care at the hospital, regardless of the state right. That is the guidance that Biden gave through an executive order. He similarly gave guidance as it relates to pharmacies and that pharmacies have to provide as well um, medication that could be related to abortion. And you can't not provide that medication under federal rules and under federal law. And what happens immediately? Texas files a lawsuit, just like the one they just did that we just talked about on immigration, saying that Biden and the administration does not even have the ability to give guidance to its agencies to enforce these rules or to even encourage. Can I ask you a question? I want to ask you a question. And this is a serious one. I just thought of it. (laughs) Do you think the founding fathers thought when they set up the federal system and the state federal system and the judiciary for the federal system and the Supreme Court and all of this, do you ever think that they would envision that a couple of states would join together, find the weak underbelly of a federal circuit, file a case there to uh, fast track it to a Supreme Court. Do, do you think that's what they had in mind? Since we always, since the Supreme Court and Clarence Thomas and others love to talk about what was in the mind of the founding fathers, do you think this exploitation of the uh, these seams in the federal system, these political seams, the political system at the judiciary level was anticipated by the founding fathers? And what would they have said about it? 
the founding fathers were very worried actually about the situation that we have now. And the founding fathers consistently talked about, as by the way, did Abraham Lincoln, that the biggest threat to our country was actually not our foreign adversaries, but like a Trump-like figure who would emerge, a demagogue that would emerge. And so a lot of the protections that were trying to be put in place were to check that from happening. But what they certainly didn't think through and what they certainly didn't protect that, you know, think through is that some of those checks could actually be used and co-opted, weaponized and weaponized by the demagogue where the people who are part of it assume that because people are self-interested sometimes that if you clash self-interest against self-interest, you can check that through kind of just the natural conflict. But going back to the beginning of our podcast, I think that they would be thinking about the cowardice, the obsequiousness of these Republicans, you know, that they could be members of Congress or members, you know, in the state house, and they don't even want to protect their own positions. They don't even want to protect their own power and their own platforms because we're supposed to have checks and balances. But what happens when one of the checks like the Republicans right now, I don't know if you saw this, Popak, during the January 6th hearing, the House Republicans were live tweeting and criticizing Sarah Matthews as basically being a rhino lefty without realizing Sarah Matthews, Sarah Matthews works for them. Currently, Sarah Matthews is on the Congressional Committee for Environmental whatever. She works for the Republicans. For the Republicans. So, so, just so look they, over. So She's over there it. getting lunch. But they but that to me is something the founding father and, and no, yeah. I, I also think, though, the founding fathers would not think, wow, you know, hundreds of years from now, rather than look at the existence of these circumstances that are impacting the nation, then we that the nation is actually going to focus of what we cannot even conceive of the future world is going to be. And when I talk to people about it, I try to break down what the Supreme Court is doing in a nutshell and how they're doing it. And the way I like to describe it is really in the 70s, 80s, 90s, you know, when we talk about the progress being made from the Supreme Court, even though you had a very you know divided Supreme Courts and right-leaning Supreme Courts or whatever, we focused at least on the effect. How did something affect something? <laughs> like, how did this action affect us today? Because we live in today and we don't live in a fantasy world. So let's look at the circumstances and try to balance them and figure out what is right for And you can go through all of the issues. And now the Supreme Court says, no, no, no. All of those effect style tests, trash them. What we need to focus on is the historical views and what our founding fathers would have done if they were around today. But we are going to interpose our radical right wing version of that narrative on today. I want to make one the right narrative. No, yeah, I I totally agree with that. And I want to give one other comment that we haven't talked about. I want to get your your view put on your continued constitutional professor hat. I've read the Federalist Papers, as have you, which were um, written by at least three of the founding fathers 
commenting on their view of society and the role of government. I've, so that's a that's a in real time expression of where the founding some of the founding fathers were. There is nowhere in the legislative history because there wasn't really legislative history when they when they brought forward con the congressional papers, when they brought forward the Constitution, the Bill of Rights. You have to rely on personal notes, personal diaries, note taking speeches that were given at the time. I am not aware of one where they said, and in the future, when you interpret this document that we have brought forth for this great nation, you're always to refer to what we were thinking back in 1780 blank. And if you can't find it there, then you're, you're stuck with the language as written. Where is that in any, where did the founding fathers talking to the future ever tell the future America, the future Supreme Court, you gotta rely on what we were thinking at the time, otherwise, no, they called it a living document for a reason because they didn't want the brittleness of the Constitution founded in the 1780s to not survive their own demise. And the only way you can do that is to let it grow with the times. Am I making sense? I, I think you're making so much sense. And look, and I think one of the, you know, Federalist Papers, too, you know, it was even referred to by Alexander Hamilton as being a living constitution. I mean, right. the, 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 there are references to it, actually, you know, that, that the Republicans it, have killed the living constitution. Yeah. And, and that needs to be kept up with the times. I mean, so anyway, I, I think you're making complete sense, Popak. I do want to talk about something, though, that does not make any sense at all. And that is <laughs> Elon Musk's position in the Delaware court of he's going down. He's going down I mean, fast. <laughs> he's go. He's going down fast. I mean, he must be under a lot, a lot of stress. But, you know, Popak, when I'm under a lot of stress, you know what I do, right? Feels. I take feels. I take feels. <laughs> CBD isn't about what you feel. It's about what you don't feel. Stress, anxiety, and pain. And this podcast is brought to you by our great partner, CBD Feels. And I want to talk about my experience with feels premium CBD. It is directly delivered to your doorstep when it comes to feels 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 naturally, and it helps reduce my stress, my anxiety, my pain, and my sleepless sleeplessness. That's why I like it. And the way I take it, Popak, is I just place a few drops under my tongue and I can feel the difference within minutes. And so feels has totally converted me into a big CBD fan. Feels is a premium CBD that will help to keep your head clear and feel your best. It's hassle-free. It's delivered directly to your door. CBD naturally helps reduce stress, anxiety, pain, and sleeplessness. There's no hangover or addiction, which is something that I specifically like about it. You know, Popak doing these podcasts could sometimes podcast. I'm flying to Arizona. I got court cases. I'm doing nonprofit. I got a lot of things going on. And so for me, just putting those little drops under my tongue and feeling good. That's why I'm feeling good today, Popak. So I just place a few drops under my tongue. I feel the difference within minutes. And the thing to remember about CBD is finding the right dose is important and everyone's dose is a bit different. But see, feels it offers a free CBD hotline will help guide your personal experience so you could find your 
perfect dose. And the field's customer service team is dedicated to making sure you get the best use of your CBD. And joining the field's monthly membership makes your self-care easy. You'll save money on every order and you can pause or cancel anytime. Start feeling better with Feels. Become a member today by going to feels.com slash legal AF. And get this, Popak, you'll get 50% off your first order with free shipping. I'm a good negotiator for the Midas Mighty to get us that 50% off. That's feels.com, F-E-A-L-S.com slash Legal AF to become a member and get that 50% off. Ben Micellis negotiated for you automatically taken off your first order with free shipping. Feels.com slash Legal AF. got to do is put that cowboy hat on and negotiate with Feels and get people that great CBD. Feels.com slash Legal AF. Popak, just tell me what's going on in Twitter. I'm not even going to give the intro. You tell me. You tell me, Michael. Oh, he's he's uh, Musk is going down and going down fast. So the chancellor of the Delaware Supreme Court that we uh, Delaware Chancery Court that we talked about last week, Kathleen McCormick, was having none of Elon Musk's lawyer's argument that the trial should be put off until February. And there's no, it's preposterous. This is how he let off in his, in his opening. Judge, it's preposterous to, to propose that this, uh, this case go to trial in three months. She interrupted him and said, it's not preposterous. We do it all the time. He said, but judge, you had a case that took a year. And he, they actually quoted a case where the judge took a year. Two problems with that, that uh, precedent that they were citing. <laughs> One, when she ultimately ruled, she ruled against the Elon Musk in the case and forced the acquisition to go forward for hundreds of millions of dollars. That's one. Two, she said, yeah, it took a year because of COVID and we were limited. Speaking of COVID, Judge McCormick or Chancellor McCormick had COVID and had it like Benny Thompson and, and our president and had to do the hearing by Zoom. And uh, so that, that didn't go well for them. They argued for February, arguing uh, their law firm argued we have to go through all the bot data the BOT data. There's there's terabytes of a judge. And the other side, led by Wachtel, said they don't have to go through the bot data because they don't have a due diligence uh, a contract right in their contract. They have to close. The bot data is a smokescreen, is a red herring. Let's get, to, let's get to the trial in September. The judge also admonished, I think that's putting it kindly, the lawyer for Elon Musk and said, you are underestimating the ability of this court to handle complicated M&A issues on a fast track. You know, when you got the judge's dander up and they're going to go after you for one, stopping you in the middle of your your pitch about the preposterousness of the speed at which she's going to try the case and her ability to comprehend um, complicated matters and kind of a moment of mansplaining. That's going rough for you. And the judge says October. So she didn't do September, but she didn't do February. The other reason that the Twitter side is so insistent and the judges agreed with them on having a fast trial date is because of the negative overhang or shadow that's been cast, an accidental threat that's been cast over Twitter because of this agreement and this lawsuit. The judge commented on it, that she feels it's almost an existential existential threat for Twitter if she doesn't move this case quickly to trial. The other side also referenced the debt financing commitments have a date in the agreement. He has until, uh, I think it's uh, April. 
think I think it's April to get his financing in place, which is not a lot of time. And they didn't want a trial and then the ultimate appeal to go over the deadline he has to get his financing in place or to have that expire so that he has no ability to close because they think that's his game. Let's stretch this thing out. Oh, I lost my banks. I lost my capital stack, as you like to say, Ben. I can't close on it, Judge. Sorry. And so she's like, she's not having it. She's like, we're going to have a full, I think, six-day or five-day trial in a September in October. If there's an appeal, there'll be plenty of time to have the appeal ruled on before any of his debt financing goes out the window. I think this bodes terribly for the Musk position. I think you have a judge that has already ruled once to have a major multi-million dollar merger go forward. Uh, they, the other side even cited it. She's uh, taking this very seriously, but she understands as a business court that to protect the company and its shareholders, which as you and I said, would be their ultimate goal, um, the, the ultimate goal, not protecting Elon Musk. And they're not talking about the billion dollar uh, uh, breakup fee. She's talking about, am I going to order the full $44, million, $44 billion acquisition or not? That's what's at stake. Nobody's talking about the billion dollar breakup fee. That's what they're talking about. So I think, Ben, based on this ruling, and then the market responded to the ruling. First, the market, the shares went up five and a half percent on Twitter after the judge made this ruling. It's still down almost $15 a share from the high of 54.20. But look, Twitter just announced almost on the same day that they missed their revenue targets by a lot. They missed their growth targets by a lot, blaming Musk, his disparagement of the company and his refusal to close on time. This is having real world impact on the public shareholders of Twitter. So one point I want to make and then kind of a broader tactical question that gets asked. So the way I think about what the argument was is here was Elon Musk's lawyers argument. They said Twitter wants to continue to shroud in secrecy the number of bot accounts and they failed to provide the information that must ask. So we need a delay. And the response from Twitter was nothing in the merger agreement turns on that question. And the judge sided with Twitter. So if nothing in the merger <laughs> agreement turns on that question. Essentially, that means that Elon Musk has lost the case before the case yeah. has even been because tried now. because if she's not giving discovery on that issue, exactly to your point, she doesn't think that's an issue that's relevant to the case. Exactly. And it isn't relevant to the case right. because Elon Musk waived due diligence on issues like that prior to the merger agreement. And while there is some level of diligence that exists, of course, in good faith within a completion of the merger agreement, the merger agreement does not hinge upon these bot accounts in any way as a material breach. And to undo a merger agreement with the facts here has almost never, ever, ever been done in the history of Delaware Transfery, except on the most egregious of facts, which just don't come close to existing here. So people say, but why, Ben? Why, Michael Popak? Why is Twitter, though, we don't want Elon Musk to buy the company. So but why is Twitter? The remedy would be that Elon Musk has to buy it. But don't we not want 
him to buy it? Well, here's the thing that Twitter realizes. Elon Musk can't buy it. He actually can't afford it was one of the reasons he wanted to pull out. And you may go, oh, but Elon Musk is worth $200 billion. Ben, you're an idiot. He doesn't he can afford it. No, 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 I'm not an idiot. Let me explain to you just because Elon Musk. <laughs> Meanwhile, you're not an idiot, Ben. <laughs> just because Elon Musk is worth $200 billion on paper doesn't mean he has $200 billion in cash. His money is based on the value of his Tesla stock, and he can't just liquidate his Tesla holdings. One, because you're not allowed to as a controlling shareholder like that, just dump all your shares on the market. It's pursuant to a specific plan and rules and regulations. But even if you did, you'd crash the stock and the value of your shares would be nothing. And then you have to he's loaning money to himself against his Tesla shares. And so who's going to loan him the money? So what? One, 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 one more factor before you move on he liquidated 75 percent of his bitcoin holding crashing the bitcoin everyone's wondering why is bitcoin crashing because elon musk sold 75 percent of of uh tesla's bitcoin holding which was a lot in order to get cash in the door to use for whatever purpose so elon musk crashed the bitcoin market elon musk is crashing twitter and you got a judge standing in the middle of all this Oh, it's absolutely, absolutely. But what Twitter wants to do is they want to put themselves in the best position of the maximum leverage here, whether that is to uh, ensure get a settlement or to you know force Elon Musk to pay $45 billion to have someone else come in and to try to pay the money. But it's negotiating from a position of strength, because if you just start with the $1 billion, you're capped at that. But here, the exposure to Elon is $45 billion, you know, $54 billion, right? $45, $44 billion at $54.20 a share. So $44, $45 billion of exposure is better than one. So that's- You know what he didn't do? This is, this is something I, I found odd. There was speculation from a strategic standpoint on your, on your point of strategy that Elon Musk lawyers, which are pretty aggressive, I've dealt with them myself, would have filed a countersuit prior to the hearing in order to kind of amp it up, have counterclaims at least present on the on the bench when the judge was going to issue her ruling to maybe give them a monkey wrench to extend the case until February. They couldn't even get their act together to file a countersuit, probably because there's not one in good faith, but they that's something that you and I maybe would have done if we had the misfortune of representing Elon Musk just to throw judge. Look at our claims. This is a complicated case. It needs more discovery. We can't just have a trial. They didn't even do that. I, it, it, they don't have a lot of arguments. Yeah. And Elon Musk is probably the client from hell here, you know, and he has not given them any good facts, you know, to to really work with. Um, talking about though facts and facts to work with, Michael Popak. Let's talk about the facts that Phony Willis has in Fulton County. Sixteen electors; those are the amount of electors that exist in the state of Georgia. But the fake electors, the Electors who had the cloak and dagger meeting in the Georgia Capitol building, uh, who appoint after knowing that Trump lost after Trump lost all of his lawsuits, after after the results were certified, after Raffensperger, the secretary of state, made it very clear 
after there was no evidence presented whatsoever, zero evidence of any fraud that could ever change the election of uh, the, uh, the, the outcome of the election. These 16 traitors, these 16 seditionists met, appointed themselves as electors, and as the overall part of the Trump coup plan, submitted themselves to uh, the National Archivists to then submit to be counted on January 6th, because the idea was when the coup takes place, we're going to count the fake electors and uh, replace the real electors <laughs> with the fake electors. That was uh. part that was the that was the coup, one of the main tenants of the coup plan. And so Bonnie Willis has been aggressively pursuing this investigation in Georgia. You know, it's notable too, Popak, that what she's pursuing there could and should be pursued in all the other states that I think we know about, you mm -hmm. know, where we've had, um, you know, these uh, fake electors. In some of the states, there's a bit of a nuance in terms of the Georgia fake electors really going all in on, on it, um, you know, on, on the criminality. But this stems from there was a motion to quash filed by 11 of the 16 fake electors saying that um, they shouldn't have to testify now that they're targets. They shouldn't be paraded. They called it a march of frogs. Frog marched is a frog it's march. A Georgia a, thing. A frog <laughs> march. I got to I got to wise up on my uh, yeah, frog march. That, that's their perp walk. It's I guess in Georgia in the in the Fulton County, it's a it's a frog marched. So they said we don't want to be frog marched into the grand jury when we're just going to have to plead the fifth because we're targets. That's how that came out that they were targets. Popak, what's going on there? Tell me a little well, bit about Giuliani and, yeah. and and some issues there though that were raised. The close call where Phony almost, you know, she got called out by the judge who's overseeing it, but it wasn't a great look. Phony um, is doing great, except this was the first hearing, and it was really a two-part hearing. You had the motion to quash the subpoena by 11 out of 16 fake electors, or as one headline I liked read, fake electors facing real criminal charges. But you also had a motion to disqualify Fawny Willis and her office, a la what Trump had done in New York. A um, The candidate for lieutenant governor of the state who Fawny Willis supported the Democratic challenger moved to disqualify because Fawny Willis held a fundraiser exercising her First Amendment rights as a fellow Democrat. Her candidate of choice is facing a primary challenge, Democrat to Democrat, and she held a fundraiser. Unfortunately, this was her first big hearing in front of Judge Robert McBurney, a double Harvard judge in Fulton County who's supervising the special grand jury who allowed her, approved her request the special grand jury is ultimately the judge over the process. He was a former uh, assistant district attorney in the Fulton County office before Fawny Willis. He was a former assistant U.S. attorney for that county, um, a very credible person. This was the first time Fawny Willis's office and Fawny was in front of him related to these various types of motions. And the judge did say two things to sort of signal to Fawny to kind of tone it down a bit. One, he commented that although she's a technically the legal advisor to the special grand jury, not a prosecutor in that in that role, he did not really like the fact that she had taken to national media on a regular basis to talk about the case. 
he said this my special advisor to the grand jury has taken to national media on a regular basis that's a signal to fawny to kind of tone down her media presentations secondly he said point blank um using a cocktail party analogy what would people think at a cocktail party about the special the the prosecutor the lead prosecutor for the county holding a fundraiser for the opponent who is also in the crosshairs as a target of a criminal investigation. He used he used words like, what were you thinking moment, bad optics moment, but he didn't go so far as to either disqualify the office or Fawny Willis from, uh, we haven't gotten his ruling yet, but at least orally during the hearing, he doesn't seem to be inclined as of yet to take Fawny off of prosecuting that particular Burt Jones as a as a defendant, he's not going to disqualify the entire office from doing the prosecution. But we have to wait to see, Ben. We'll probably talk about it next week. What he finally does about Burt Jones's target letter and testimony before the grand jury. Um, but it was interesting to hear him also remind everybody, and we haven't really talked about the process this way, that it is him as the judge supervising the special grand jury, not Fawny Willis, that's going to make the decision about first, he gets the report before anybody from the grand jury. And secondly, the release of that report is not based on what Fawny wants. It's based on what the judge wants to do. And he's already said, I'm not going to make this political. If it gets too close, this is another warning to Fawny Willis. If it gets too close to the midterm election season, I'm going to withhold the report so as not to impact the election. So this is already July. November is the election. She better hurry up because if there's not a big time interval, as the judge would like to say, between the report being issued by the special grand jury and the timing of the election, he's going to put it in an embargo in his desk drawer and not release it until after the midterm so they don't have an impact on Burt Jones on others. I thought that was very interesting, Ben. His his kind of reasserting his role in the process, reminding Fawny Willis that she's the legal advisor, and I don't want to see you as, on TV as much or holding uh, fundraisers for opponents of people that you're targeting. Yeah, you know, so one of the things for disqualification uh, or the disqualification of her would have to be an actual conflict versus the appearance of a conflict or the appearance of impropriety. And here, while he mentioned the appearance just doesn't look good, it's a bad look that you're holding this fundraiser at the same time of the prosecution. Just don't hold the fundraiser and do the prosecution. It's not an actual conflict. And these things happen, but it's just not a good look given the profile of it. So I think that is you know, why she won't ultimately be disqualified. But you see a little bit of a contrast, though, Popak. And I, by the way, I think Fawny's doing good. And I think Merrick Garland's doing good, but I think there is a contrast in style that is worth kind of pointing out because as the Fawny Willis investigation has um, accelerated and as she's done this incredible job, there is going to be a lot more media attention there that wasn't there before. And, you know, someone like a Merrick Garland who has had the media spotlight there before you know, in some of the most high profile prosecutions 
it is not easy to like deflect that and to and to grapple with that with the height of a prosecution of this magnitude. And when you fly very close to the sun, sometimes you got to be careful of how of how close to the sun you come. And that's kind of what the judge was saying here, too, which was like, this is a serious prosecution and there is a level of media relations that comes with that but you don't want the media piece of it to overtake the justice piece of it and that's an important part that needs to be considered i think as we look at fulton county because look that could pump us up as podcasters as analysts as people on social media, as people in the town square having the discussion, you know, we want the cheese may, you know, we want the gossip. We want to know that. But sometimes it's important to say, look, let them pursue it quietly. Let's get the report. Let's get it done. And then we can have the public display at the right time. I think I agree with I agree with everything you said. I think I think the judge did the right thing to get her to tone it down a little bit, focus her efforts on what's in the grand jury room, not so much doing press conferences about and giving media interviews about she's not political. She's going to take where the facts are. You know what? Don't go on television. and Talk about that. Just do do your work. I think she took a little more of a page out of Tish James's book than Merrick Garland's book. But the problem is Tish James is civilly investigating, not criminally investigating. And as you said, you and I were, you and I have been talking about Fawny Willis for eight months, nine months. We, we've been talking about her so long. We finally figured out how to pronounce her name because in the beginning it was like Fanny Willis in Fulton County. Like we got it now, but now the Klieg lights of national and international media have descended on Fulton County DA office. And the judge has to worry about the sanctity of the special grand jury process and that it not get inadvertently compromised by somebody who sort of doesn't color within the lines. I'm okay with what he did. I don't think she gets disqualified, even with Burt Jones. And I think this this moves forward towards a report and recommendation. We now know goes to the judge for the ultimate decision whether there's going to be an indictment of President Trump. We didn't talk about Giuliani. This one's easy. The now disbarred New York, former New York bar member, Rudy Giuliani, decided not to appear in front of a New York judge on an order to show cause in New York State Supreme Court, the trial level court, to answer for the subpoena that Fawny Willis brought to New York because Giuliani lives in New York. So her subpoena only has power within maybe a hundred miles of Fulton County. You got to go to a judge in the state where the person resides and convince them to issue the subpoena or the, the uh, warrant or whatever it is. In this case, she went to uh, judge Farber and in Manhattan and said, bring Rudy Giuliani before you to answer for my subpoena. Judge set a hearing date of July 13th. That date came and went and Rudy Giuliani just refused to appear. So he's not only in contempt, but potentially of court in New York. And, and as of the taping of the podcast on Saturday, I have not seen any reports that Rudy Giuliani has filed anything in federal or state court in Georgia. So he has an August 9th appearance before the grand jury. And if he doesn't appear, they'll move, I assume, in Georgia for criminal contempt of the grand jury process there, much like the Jan 6 committee in Bannon. And we'll see how far Rudy Giuliani wants to take his efforts to become Bannon's cellmate. Such a great point, though, bringing up Bannon and Giuliani. 
like that. I mean, you know, it's, it's an easy connection to make because they're both seditionist, traitor, insurrectionists, and, and, and morons. Um, although, <laughs> you know, Bannon's a bit more calculated uh, than, than Nesta Giuliani's, but it's the same kind of playbook. And this is why, why we do this podcast, like why it's so important to talk about the law and the legal system, because these fascists, these traitors, these people who are anti-democracy, they fear the courtroom when facts, when objectivity, when the truth comes before a jury. And you have to make these arguments one way or the other, and people get to look at you and you have to follow a process and a procedure. They don't want that whatsoever. So what does Bannon do? He just goes on his podcast and rails about, I'm going to give them hell and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. But you were a chicken shit in court. In court, you had the opportunity to testify. You had the opportunity to tell your side. You could have got up there and you could have said, oh, the January 6th committee, this, the January 6th committee, that I was negotiating with them. This was you could have said all of that, but you chickened out because that is what you do. It's the same thing, you know, with Giuliani. You're not even going to show up in the courts. You can't even appear at a real hearing that's actually under oath. So you hold fake hearings and hotel lobbies, and it's all a big charade because they don't have the facts. They don't have the evidence. And one of the things circling back to the January 6th committee, you know, is you had 70 cases in federal courtrooms across the country, and you lost you lost every single one of them. The oh, it's 70. You, well, they technically they <laughs> technically one. won one, which was yeah. a procedural issue, which didn't even help them in Pennsylvania. But it had nothing to do with any underlying evidence or anything about voter fraud. It just had to do with the procedure of how counting took place. But it was not a substantive you know, thing. But it was here's the thing. All you had to do is show evidence in a valid declaration of any of these claims that you're making. And they could not. And they go, oh, well, some of them were thrown out for standing. Sure. Some of them were thrown out for standing. Most of them were decided because you, you had no evidence. But not having standing is even worse than not having the evidence. Not having standing means you're so wrong that you're not even the right person to even step into the courtroom in the first place to make the argument. You know, Republicans act like this standing argument was that the courts acted unfair to them. But guess what? The New York well, Jets don't get to play in Madison Square Garden. OK, <laughs> that's good. By the way, maybe if they had chosen lawyers like closer to the Mount Rushmore of the legal elite instead of who they chose, to prosecute their cases, maybe they'd get things like standing right, the right courtroom right, the relief right, and the evidence presentation right. But but back to your point, they can't get the evidence presentation right because there is no evidence. I want to say one thing that 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 we've said before, but just to reiterate, there's always fraud in every election. Every election since time immemorial, from when we had paper ballots and those big bulky machines when I first voted in 1980-something, where you flipped a switch and the curtain closed and it was like a mechanical ballot, all the way through the electronic voting, there is always a degree of fraud in an election. 
it usually historically amounts to 0.02 or less percent. It's people voting in the wrong precinct. It's a little bit of dead people voting. It's a little bit of a little bit of Mark uh, Meadows and a little bit of Mark Meadows voting twice. Yeah, yeah. It's a little bit of I submitted an absentee ballot and I went and voted on Election Day. It always happens. But because of the numbers that vote in a national election, totaling hundreds of millions of people, it doesn't statistically matter or change an election. It was never going to overcome the seven million popular vote that Biden won by or the electoral vote state by state. So we're not here to say that it was a perfect election. It was both, a fraud, but, but here's the thing, a fraud free sides, election. Yeah. Right. Every single it's not it's it's not a political. I mean, normally I've seen when these cases have happened, almost all of them in the small fraction of cases where people vote in the wrong place or all of that yeah. intentionally. It's Republicans. But right. and that's what I've seen in this election, that it's that it's Republicans like what Mark Meadows did voting in North Carolina. But there will be a small fraction, like you said, in everything. Yeah. But here the question is, this is Ben Ginsburg, who is the legal titan for, you know, who's the Republican lawyer, who Republican legal titan, yeah. Republican legal titan. And he said, look, you know, when we deal with these fraud cases, it's about specific areas with specific findings where it could actually change the election. And none of that happened here in Popak. One last point, which is a nice transition into this Alina Haba thing, though, <laughs> is that the firms that were the bigger firms that had any self-respect, like they if they wouldn't lose their legal license because we still have our legal system, they were afraid. They weren't courageous, these big firms. I'm not going to give them credit for being courageous. They were afraid they would lose their legal licenses and they were right to be afraid because all of the idiot Trump lawyers who went in and lied to the court have lost their legal licenses or have been sanctioned severely or are under investigation. That's why they didn't do it. If they could get away with it, these greedy people would get it, would do it. A lot of them, not all of them. There's some really good ones out there. So I don't want to um, characterize it. And the good ones know who they are. I think maybe they do, or maybe the bad ones, you know, think they're good ones, but they're not. So probably that as well. But they at least knew not to proceed. That's why Trump got all of these other lawyers who are now under these investigations and being disbarred. And now you have Alina Haba is just one of Trump's lawyers who she files these ridiculous things in court. I mean, ridiculous documents. I mean, and I think Trump uses her. I mean, her office is right next to Trump's golf course. You know, uh, she, you know, she, she loses everything that she, that she files and in an embarrassing fashion, which is why Trump, I think likes to use her, though, because she'll still file whatever it, it'll serve his purposes. It'll She's delay. And so we've talked about all of the different cases, whether it's the Tish James stuff that she files where Trump was held in contempt. You know, she sent demand letters to Pulitzer to asking that they withdraw the award from The Washington Post for giving them a Pulitzer Prize for investigating Trump and threatening to sue them like like literally just like the worst lawyer ever. Um, you know, and now she'd been sued for employment discrimination. The boss from hell is what one uh, paper above the law website is calling Alina Haba. And the, the allegations from this employee uh, was that Alina Haba created this highly, you know, racist, toxic environment that Alina Haba would blast 
uh, hip hop music and use all of the kind of slurs that were in the hip hop music and uh, and would would blast the hip hop music and would kind of belt these words out loud right before the hearings that she would go into. And as uh, above the law says, perfectly normal conduct for lawyers. I mean, obviously being uh, facetious and then just uh, I want I've got to go into the comments that are alleged. We, we could drop. The yeah, lawsuit. no, I, no, no. I, wait a minute. There's things in there besides her using the N word out loud and, and rapping to DMX and Lil Wayne and others. We have a black paralegal plaintiff who followed Lena Haba from one firm to another. Lena Haba was at another firm. She had her, I guess, her maiden, her maiden name, Ayet, and then moved on with another colleague of hers and founded a firm, went out and reached out to this plaintiff to join her in Bedminster, New Jersey, at this small firm that she set up. Everything's going great, except this black woman paralegal takes offense to Lena Haba and her partner blasting rap music, singing the N-word to get themselves pumped up for court proceedings and otherwise. Note to Lena Haba, it's not working. You've lost every court proceeding. Maybe you should try a different tactic. She also, when she was confronted by the plaintiff about the, about the hostile work environment, because Lena Haba called her on the carpet and said, you don't seem happy around the office anymore. Is it the cases you're assigned to? She said, well, she finally screwed up enough courage to tell her, mm, I really find it offensive when you order fried chicken for a uh, lunch and you tell me you're doing it because of me or you use the N-word. And Lena Haba, rather than saying, hey, you're right, that's inappropriate, I'll, I'll make changes, please don't sue me and I'll, I'll, I'll change my ways. She said, "You're," <laughs> Lena Haba said to her, you're making me uncomfortable, that, that you're not comfortable in this law office and your job as a paralegal is to make me feel more comfortable. And I'm a fellow minority, you know, the old, you know, I can't be racist, I have black people as friends. I'm an Arab American and 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 I and I can't be racist. And also the plaintiff said to her, I don't like the fact that you called Letitia James that black B word <clears throat> frequently in this office. And she said, well, that wasn't for your ears. You weren't supposed to have heard that. So I think they have a very good case. I think they have three counts in New Jersey Superior Court in um, Sussex County under the New Jersey discrimination laws. They've got two other counts for emotional distress and punitive damages. I assume there was a demand letter before this case went out to try to settle the case voluntarily. Um, I assume that that was rejected by Alina Haba, who wants her day in court. And now she and her partner and her law firm are going to get it. Popak, Popak, Popak with the great summary. Popak, did you see <laughs> the moment in the January 6th hearing where Josh Hawley um, yeah. And then everybody was like <laughs> laughing at him for running, for running away from the insurrection that he inspired. Did you know, Popak, that Midas Touch made a shirt? Don't coo it. Don't oh, my God. I have don't to do it. Let's yeah, show it. Gonna, Salty, show yeah, it. Yeah, we're, we're showing it right now. Go to store.midastouch.com. You can get we made the shirt like literally right after it and have it in production. And already some deliveries are being. Did made. you see Carol? Did you see Carol Maloney's tweet? What right off it? of that. Oh, it was great. The representative leading Democrat out of New York. She had a great one shot split screen tweet. I think I, I think I retweeted it. Left side was Hawley fist up solidarity, the Jan six people. And the other side was him, that that grainy shot of him running. And on the left side, it said, uh, uh, so 
and the right side said reap. Uh, and that sort of summed it up. You know, he's he he was he was high legging it out the back out the back. But look, the one of the scariest things that we didn't talk about tonight, maybe you guys talked about it on the brothers podcast, was was this got so I know the Republicans, the right wingers who are not following this Jan six or think it's a kangaroo court or it's not changing their mind. They think, oh, there was there was not a violent overthrow. Secret service for Vice President Pence were saying goodbye to their loved ones because they thought they would die in the line of service protecting the vice president. Secret service thought they were going to die on that day. What does that tell you about the melee of the siege that was laying on the Capitol led by and promoted by the president? Well, Popak, in terms of you saying the first up, Popak, are you lifting right now? Do you lift? Because lift bigger? No, your arms. When gun, you were gun doing- show? When you were doing that, the arms were looking pretty big. Are you? Di- I think the Midas Mighty want to know, are you lifting? What's your you I have maintain a routine like my that? same exercise regime since I was in college? What is that? I work out like three days a week. Yeah, what kind of workouts? The people want to know. I t- I'll talk to you offline about my special. Workout. Oh, so that. Wow. That, we'll, 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 we'll probe Feels. deeper there. On the next, <laughs> definitely go to feels. Um, but Popak, the editorial page of the New York Post, though, says, "Oh yeah, that yeah, that they wrote one and they said, as a matter of principle, as a matter of character, Trump has proven himself unworthy to be this country's chief executive again." So sentiment is moving there. They have their own. Well, wait, 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 wait! Don't don't leave yet. Rupert Murdoch owns the New York Post every day. Since last January, the New York Post has has had an article above the fold, the old time he speak about newspapers, above anything related to positive news about Joe Biden or the economy or the Gen 6 committee about Hunter Biden and his laptop. Every day, you can look it up every day since last January, that paper's editorial board just said Trump is not fit to serve in office again. Popak, I find it funny that you're keeping your workout routine secret. Um, for, I, I, it's, it's a whole funny concept. It's a whole funny delving into your mind. I do want to tell everybody as well, make sure you do this now. Please subscribe to the Legal AF podcast on audio. Wherever you get audio, make sure you subscribe to Legal AF on audio. Of course, on YouTube, subscribe on YouTube as well. But to all my YouTube folks out there, you know, we got 110,000 YouTube views on the last one. I need all 110,000 of you right now. Please go to wherever you get your audio podcast, subscribe on the audio as well. Play Legal AF on both the YouTube and the audio as well. And make sure you leave a five star review on the audio. I want to give a special thanks to our sponsor, Feels. Popak, you thought I was going to give you the special thanks? I'm no, no, I'm tipping my hat to the sponsor. <laughs> Feels.com slash legal AF, F-E-A-L-S.com slash legal AF. Michael Popak with the hat. I want to say your hat endurance. You took off the hat a few times. I'm not sure if that's been, you had a, you didn't fully commit that. to the hat in the episode, but the hat looks great on you, Michael Popak. You too. And it also is great to be with you every 
weekend even when i'm here in arizona i bring the equipment with me it's great covering all of these critical legal issues our democracy depends on it and it depends on the fight of all the midas mighty all the midas mighty you can go to store.midastouch.com and thank you to all the midas mighty who uh, contribute to independent journalism on the super donation, whatever, or super contribution function, whatever they call it on uh, on YouTube. We appreciate everyone who's given that. It allows independent journalism to thrive. Thank you all, and we will see you next time on Legal AF. Ben Micellis and Michael Popak giving a special shout out to the Midas Mighty. Midas Mighty.